meditate on the words we just sung, I invite you to take your Bible again and turn to Psalm 29. Psalm 29 will be the exposition this morning. And the hymn we have just sung could not be more appropriate for the occasion. Psalm 29, it says, a psalm of David. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, David has written, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Please be seated. The message of this series is entitled, Who is God? And today is part one. How would you answer that question, who is God? Most would probably come up with an answer they think is accurate and somewhat articulate, but I'm afraid that few would be able to defend it with Scripture. But that's where I come in. The Bible says that in Ephesians 4, verse 12, that God gave the church pastor teachers to do a specific thing. To equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So part of being an equipper of saints, which is you all, is to teach you a right view of God and to learn how to defend that view. And so today, that's what I'm going to seek to do. Teach you a sound theology proper, not an exhaustive one, but we've got to start somewhere, right? And then a simple apologetic via a beautifully written piece of Hebrew poetry. The psalm before us right now, Psalm 29, we find that David revealed to his readers three attributes of God that must frame your view of who God is. He is holy. He is omnipotent. And he is sovereign. Again, I've said this before and I'll repeat it because we learn by repetition, right? Our doctrine always informs our practice. In other words, 
what we do and what we say reveals what we believe in our hearts. You can easily tell what someone believes by observing how they speak and what they do. If you understand that God is holy, then you will fearfully worship him. And you will hate sin. And you will love his law. Psalm 119, 165 says, those who love your law have great peace. If you understand that God is omnipotent, then you will give glory to him and not to man. If you understand that God is sovereign, then you will find true and lasting peace and comfort, knowing that your past, present, and future circumstances are, were, and will be in his grip. Now, draw your attention to the first attribute of God discovered in Psalm 29. In verses 1 and 2, we see that God is holy. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Notice three times David wrote, Ascribe to Yahweh. The phrase is intended to build momentum, like a musical crescendo, and to underscore the importance of a theocentric, God centered worship atmosphere. The phrase ascribe means to acknowledge, to declare something as belonging rightfully to God. And not only does he require us to acknowledge the glory due himself, He demands acknowledgement from his holy angels, which are the sons of the mighty in verse 1. They're the holy angels. This interpretation is consistent with the way we are to interpret the sons of God in Genesis 6, verse 2, and Job chapter 1, verse 6. Remember in Genesis 6, before the flood, it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Sons of God, in that context, are the fallen angels. Job 1, verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. In the same context, we see that Satan also appeared before the throne of God. The sons of God, the mighty ones of God, are the angels. And so if we're to be wholly consistent Bible interpreters, paying attention to the Scripture... And the principle of the analogy of the faith, analogia fide, which is the reformed doctrine that Scripture interprets Scripture, we can understand then that the sons of the mighty are clearly the heavenly beings. And David calls upon those countless myriads of heavenly hosts to acknowledge the glory of the Almighty. So think about this. If David calls the holy, sinless angels to acknowledge the glory due to God, how much more should we, as unholy, sinful, fallen creatures, ascribe glory to God? How much more? Look at the second line of verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. What does that mean? 
Well, to ascribe glory to God is to acknowledge the splendor and supremacy of his royal monarchy. Glory belongs to God and to God alone, to God exclusively. This is where we get the sola Deo Gloria, right? Any miracle, any mind-blowing occurrence that you see unfold in life should cause you to acknowledge God's splendor and supremacy as he reigns rightfully. A sinner is converted. Ascribe glory to God. A life is saved on the operating table. Ascribe glory to God. You are healed by modern medicine. Ascribe glory to God. You accomplish something extraordinary. Ascribe glory to God. And when we fail to ascribe glory to God, we succeed at acknowledging the supremacy and splendor of, get this, self. Or someone else. In addition to glorifying God in all the good things in life, as we see later in the text, we are to glorify God in the bad things as well. More on that later. David continues by saying, ascribe to the Lord strength, which means to acknowledge God's unhindered ability to carry out all the decrees of his divine will. He has the strength to carry out his will. He is not weak like temporary, frail human kings. He does not spend countless hours and days strategizing strategizing uh, with an army and a navy to win wars. That's what human kings do. And we see that unfold right now, don't we, in our country. And Yahweh does not fret about the inevitable attack of his enemies. Because he decrees the Alpha to the Omega, the beginning to the end. And in the end, we know who wins. Amen? The third line, David goes on to write, glory is due his name, which simply means that we are to acknowledge what is appropriate. We are to acknowledge God's revealed character. And we can only find out who God is, what his character is like, unless we study the, God, the word of God, all of it. Not just what we like. Not just what's easy. Not just what tickles our ears. All of it. The angels are summoned to do this very thing. Without ceasing. And so I would restate the same thought to you as I did before. If the holy angels are responsible to acknowledge God's glory and strength as he sits on his heavenly throne, how much more should we? Continually acknowledge the glory and strength of our God. David concludes this section at the end of verse 2, and he says, Worship the Lord in holy array. We get a glimpse of a heavenly worship service. The Hebrew word for worship literally means to bow down. You know that hymn we always sing, All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall? It's just another way of saying, bow down before Christ and worship. It means to lower oneself down in the presence of the one who is lifted up. 
It gives the idea of subordination upon the worshiper's will before God. And so what we see here is a concise but full picture of worship. Now, there are plenty of opinions about this, isn't there? There are plenty of opinions with regard to what true worship is. And where opinions abound, expectations abound. And where you have people not having their expectations met, you end up with a divisive church, right? And so that SV Bible Church may grow in unity, I beg you to allow Psalm 29 to inform our theology of worship right now. Remember, the book of Psalms is God's hymnal. And so we will touch on this subject often as it comes up through our exposition. First of all, number one, understand that worship involves the mind and the will. That's it. Notice I did not say emotion. I did not say entertainment or style or anything else. Too often do we focus on the secondary matters of worship, even in seminary. All we could do is argue about the style and preferences of people. No. We are to focus on mind and the will in our worship services. So, with the mind, the worshiper is to ascribe to God those attributes and character qualities that he possesses. For instance, how about God's glory and strength, as well as all of the other attributes of God revealed in Scripture? That is why you have heard me criticize certain songs that pass for worship songs in many contemporary churches. If you pay attention to the most popular Christian songs, you will notice that few acknowledge God's glory, strength, holiness, Majesty, sovereignty, righteousness, faithfulness, grace, mercy, wrath, or justice. Name a few. So in worship, we must have the goal of acknowledging God's attributes, which is why you need to learn and memorize God's attributes, all of them, so that you can be discerning. If you're going to worship biblically, and it doesn't matter how long you've been in Christ, you need to deepen your understanding of who God is. Worship involves the mind. Secondly, it involves the will. With the will, the worshiper lowers himself willingly from the heart and chooses to subordinate himself before the throne. Another hymn we like to sing, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Right? In that music we sing, we're acknowledging God's rule. Right? If, if our worship is done by expulsion or externally motivating ritual or sacrament, then that's false worship. Now, to be clear, going to church or putting a round wafer in your mouth, for example, because you feel like you have to, like a chore, is nothing less than idolatry. And in Isaiah 1, 
we see a very clear illustration of this. It was written in a time where Judah and Israel were in the cesspool deep in idolatry. And so God sends Isaiah to say these words. You are, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me and worship, who requires of you this trampling in my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure. Now this is God speaking, and he's telling them, all of these things you're doing, which I prescribed, I'm weary of it. Now why would Yahweh be weary of something that the Jews are doing when they were commanded to do it. It's because it was just an external ritual. And we see all over Scripture that God does not care about our external practices if our heart is not engaged. But this sort of false worship happens every Sunday because the will is not there. True worship is what the first two verses in Psalm 29 are about. To acknowledge God's glory and strength with the mind and willingly from the heart come into his presence on our faces. Because God is holy. And his holiness demands that way of worship. All we can do is follow the paradigm the angels have. If the holy angels are to view God as holy and worship him in this way, I think it's safe to say that so should we. The second attribute of God revealed in this psalm is God's omnipotence. God's omnipotence, verses 3 through 9. Follow along as I read this section again. David says the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. Now I want you to notice, beginning in verse 3, the phrase, the voice of the Lord. In this section of Psalm 29, this phrase is repeated seven times. Again, this is an intentional act done by the inspired poet. Because in Hebrew thought, seven, you have heard this before, 
Seven is the number of completeness and perfection and fullness. What David intends to convey to us by this repetition is that the voice of the Lord speaks with complete, full supremacy over creation's elements. There is full perfection in the power of God. In other words, Yahweh is omnipotent. Omni meaning all. Potent means strong or powerful. God is all powerful. And so what follows in Psalm 29 verses 3 through 9, is the unpacking of the whole scope of God's full, perfect, complete power over the laws of nature. It's very important to understand before we get into this. Let me repeat it. Verses 3 through 9 is the unpacking of the scope of Yahweh's power over creation. Now let's dig into this. Pick up again in verse 3. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. Now the waters in this context refers to the literal Mediterranean Sea. And and as you know, borders the eastern coast of Israel. What we see here in verse 3 is a picture of a raging storm about to brew upon the sea. And the sea is induced, excuse me, the storm is induced by God himself. Second line, verse 3, David says, the God of glory thunders. And what the psalmist wants us to imagine here is the sound of a loud, violent, booming electrical thunderstorm as it radiates over the horizon. And the intent here is for us to get a small glimpse of God's power. When you hear thunder, you know that it is an extension of God's voice. Furthermore, it is a display of the glory of God. Psalmist goes on to say, The Lord is over many waters. David continues, which speaks to the immense size of the sea where the storm is now raging. The Lord is over these massive bodies of water in the sense that he controls all of them. Now, a little bit of uh, trivia for you, okay? Did you know that 71% of the earth's surface is water covered? Remember that back from... Elementary school, maybe? And did you know that the average depth of the ocean, according to Noah, is about 12,000 feet? Or that the deepest part of the ocean is approximately 36,000 feet deep? That's 6.8 miles. I didn't know that one. But get this. With his voice, Yahweh controls every facet of it. He commands it. He manipulates it to do exactly what he wants, when he wants, as severe as he wants. Now, isn't that mind-boggling? Verse 4. The voice of the Lord is powerful. It is the voice of the Lord that is creating this thunderstorm. It is the voice of the Lord that is commissioning it. It's not the mythical, magical Mother Nature who causes thunderstorms. It is not happenstance or random chance that brings about violent weather. It is the power of God manifested. And so when you study the weather forecast, like I do a lot because I'm waiting for a sunny day, 
Think of it as looking at a human prediction of God's power. The voice of the Lord is also majestic, David says, which represents the regal nobility of a king and all of his pomp and grandeur that would surround a king's throne. And the psalmist is peering us into this divinely aroused thunderstorm, taking in the lightning, the power, the wind, the waves, the, the howling noise. And so we are to stand in terrible awe of this majestic scene. Have you ever gazed into a storm? Or watch an avalanche? Or watch a tornado? I'm from the Midwest, so I've seen one of those things start. Or any other kind of natural phenomenon? Have you seen something like that and just been awestruck? That's the power of God manifesting. It's simply an earthly illustration of God's kingly majesty, and that does not even do it justice. So at this point in the psalm, David switches gears from painting a picture of a storm in the middle of the ocean or the sea. Now we're going to transition onto land. Look at verse 5. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. And so with this devastating force of God's voice, he snaps into the towering, gigantic cedars like toothpicks, like a twig, like a cheap pencil. And so we understand, we must understand rather that these cedars from Lebanon were among the largest trees in the world. They existed in Lebanon, which is a mountainous land north of the promised land. These trees uh, were measured in Bible times as being as big as 40 feet around the base of the trunk. And so naturally they would be harvested and used as giant pillars to support the structure of a grand temple or massive building. And so I bring this out because the trees in Psalm 29 are not like the trees that we have. You know, I was, I was cruising down 203 on my, on my, on my road king yesterday, and, and I was admiring all the beautiful evergreens. But, I, but as I've been meditating on this psalm, I started to think, man, these, these little trees are like, like twigs. They're skinny. And when we get a mild storm around this, these here parts, they blow over or they split. And you have to call the city to come in and take it away. So don't think like our skinny little evergreens here in Washington. Think like Sequoia National Park. You guys ever been there? Sequoia National Park in Central California? Well, this park is known for its giant trees called redwoods or sequoias. They can reach up to 300 feet tall. And if you Google these pictures, don't do it now. If you Google these pictures, you'll see breathtaking uh, pictures of, of people standing next to these trees. And they look like insects next to these trees. 
And, the, and, and what we need to understand is here, those trees, like the trees in Lebanon, as monstrous as they are, with the word, with one thunderbolt, God can reduce every sequoia to fragments. Just as he can with the cedars of Lebanon. The psalmist is, and in this scene, he's further describing the omnipotence of God by expanding this picture of controlling the storms of the sea and the carnage we see on land due to a mighty act of heaven. In verse 6, we learn that Yahweh's omnipotence extends to the animal kingdom. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. This is a poetic way to say that the, that the Lord makes the immovable rocky terrain of Lebanon frolic like an untamed animal. To the mightiest of men, nature seems insurmountable. If not, just go visit Alaska in the wintertime. The most clever, educated, rugged men on the earth are no match for the elements of nature, which is why Alaska is called the last frontier. But with a word, Yahweh can make the mountains dance. We see this in the second line of verse 6. And Syrian like a wild ox. Syrian is the Phoenician name for Mount Hermon which is a massive peak at the northernmost boundary of the promised land. So if you were to look at this mountain ascending to 9,000 feet, you would be totally captivated by this site because the terrain goes from basically sea level, skyrocketing up to 9,000 feet. And as I was studying this, it reminded me of Mount Rainier. Because every time I drive down to the Air Force Base, I can look up and I can see Mount Rainier off in the distance. And probably just like you, every time I see it, it catches my attention and I'm marveled by it. And so there's no doubt that when the Israelites came into view of Mount Hermon, they had a similar reaction. But when God sends this storm to this land... Even this humanly insurmountable mountain begins to buckle and tremble under the brute force of his voice. Are you beginning to see the wide scope of God's omnipotence? With a word, he can command the sea. He can, he can reduce the largest uh, trees on the face of the earth to splinters. He can cause the highest mountains to buckle. He says that he can make Mount Hermon skip like a wild ox. Now, I didn't grow up on an animal farm, but I don't think that's necessary to understand how difficult it would be to make a young wild ox do anything. An ox is known for being stubborn, untrainable. Ox are known for having a mind of their own. They're not like domesticated dogs that you can train and cuddle and tell it to sit, stay, or go. No. Mount Hermon is likened to a 
headstrong, insubordinate beast that suddenly skips when God says move. Now to verse 7. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire, which simply speaks to the thunderbolts that descend from heaven and ignites the side of Mount Hermon. And so at this point in the storm, the mountain becomes a towering inferno, like a 9,000-foot tall torch. So now let's review this scene just to make sure we're all on the same page here. God creates a brutal thunderstorm in the middle of the ocean. He brings the storm to Lebanon where he obliterates the world's strongest trees. And he causes the mighty mountain of, of Mount Hermon to move and then sets it ablaze. All of this materializes by the sheer power of God's voice. What a powerful, poetic way to illustrate God's omnipotence. But the psalmist is not done yet. In verses 8 and 9, he continues elaborating on God's supreme power, revealed in an upheaval of nature's strongest inhabitants. So far, the storm has only affected the northern part of the promised land. But now, God is moving the storm south. Look at verse 8. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Now, you may recall that Kadesh is the place in the wilderness where Moses and the Hebrews ended their wandering. Kadesh is south of the promised land, and it was the place where, you recall, Miriam died and was buried. It was also the place where Moses sent the 12 men to spy into Canaan. So the point here is this. If you, if you look on a map, also you can Google this, but not now. If you look on a map, it's easy to find one on Google. You, you can see that in the pre-conquest Palestine, okay, if, if you're losing track with me, you need to come to Equip. <laughs> okay? Or get a good study Bible. If you, if you see a map of pre-conquest Palestine, you'll see at the top of the map is Mount Hermon. And at the bottom is Kadesh. And by understanding the vast space in between these two locations, the reader of Psalm 29 is exposed to the limitless scope or breadth of God's omnipotence. He creates the storm, he manages the storms, he destroys what he wants, but then he moves it along. In other words, David is saying, Yahweh can bring the same catastrophic devastation to one corner of the globe just as much as the other. Furthermore, look at verse 9. This is very interesting. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve. Now, without getting too nitty-gritty, this means that the storm is so terrifying that in the midst of it causes animals who are pregnant to prematurely give birth. And then notice finally, David says it strips the forests bare. This wasn't enough to obliterate the cedars, and to set ablaze the mountain, 
this storm induced by Yahweh that's moving on to Kadesh leaves behind a trail of mangled and shredded timber. Do you have a vivid picture in your mind by now? And so at this point, since you've been presented with this striking illustration of the scope of God's omnipotence, how do we respond? What do we do with this truth? And I'll rephrase it. When you look around and you see the devastation of tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis, what should you do? How do you cope? Well, as you consider the destruction of Lebanon and Mount Hermon and Kadesh, Psalm 29 is very clear, and it gives us the answer. In verse 9, it tells us, and in his temple, everything says glory. Glory. That's your response. The devastation of the earth. Glory. He wants us to behold the power of God revealed in nature and simply worship him. As soon as God's people can, they assemble together in unity and they say one thing, glory. These are the believers on earth. And they agree with and they mimic what the angels are doing in verses 1 and 2 around the throne. Like the angels, these people who are witnessing the smoke and destruction and the carnage, they come together in the temple and they look upward into the presence of God and they ascribe power to God as it has been unleashed upon the circumstances of their life. They come to the house of God with fear. Because by witnessing this omnipotence, they realize just how not in control they are. So my friends, I know this response is antithetical to your nature. And I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not even claiming to have a clear record in this area myself. Psalm 29 could not be any clearer. God is omnipotent. And the manifestation of it demands a worshipful response from us. And the third attribute of God in this psalm is God's sovereignty. But time doesn't permit me to expound on that adequately in 15 minutes. So we'll get to that next week. Till then, I exhort you, as my brothers and sisters, to think deeply about these two attributes of God revealed in Psalm 29, verses 1 to 9. God is holy, and he is omnipotent. If you have a firm grasp of God's holy person, then it compels you to ascribe him glory and strength through his name, which means acknowledge and worship his heavenly splendor and majesty. And ability to rule. If you have a firm grasp on the scope of God's omnipotence, then at all times 
even in times of public mayhem, it compels you to respond one way. Glory. And as I close, do you guys see how theocentric this psalm is? How God-centered this psalm is? It's all about giving glory to God, isn't it? And as a church, that's what I want us to be about. In fact, our mission statement, you guys remember our mission statement? What is it? SV Bible Church exists to glorify God. Full stop. We exist to glorify God. And preaching, evangelizing, discipling, and obeying are all the ways that we do that. And so may, may I do my best to rekindle our goal to glorify God, being of the same mind today. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are holy and omnipotent. May we respond as David says we are to respond and say glory and to respond with acknowledging your glorious strength. Thank you for these dear saints who are here today. May they be edified and encouraged and and built up and equipped to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.